0: Good day, listeners. This is your host, Michael Martins, with the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting this evening from a wintry day in West Kelowna, British Columbia. In today's episode, we continue our series on the early peopling of the Americas, examining who they are, where they came from, and how they adapted to ever-changing climates. Joining us today is Dr. Bruce Bradley, an Emeritus Professor at the University of Exeter. Dr. Bradley received his BA from the University of Arizona in anthropology with a minor in geology, and a strong passion for archaeology. He later received a PhD in archaeology from the University of Cambridge in experimental archaeology in 1977. His early research was focused on the North American Southwest and the Great Plains, where he applied an anthropological approach to much of his work. During some 30 years of field work, he has been involved in research and excavations in America, England, France, Ireland, Spain, Lebanon, Kazakhstan, Russia, and Brazil. His areas of expertise include the early peopling of the Americas, the Clovis culture, flint knapping techniques, horse domestication in Central Asia, and prehistoric Pueblo archaeology of the American Southwest. Dr. Bradley is the author of several books and a multitude of scientific peer-reviewed journal articles. He is active in bringing his archaeological and anthropological interests to the public through presentations, teaching, interactive with Native American communities, and his participation in documentaries. Dr. Bradley, it's a pleasure to speak with you this evening. Thank you so much for your time and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Michael. Glad to be here.
0: Fantastic. So uh, maybe we could start off with uh, perhaps if you could share with the listeners uh, how you originally became passionate about archaeology and the early people in the Americas.
1: Well, as with many other archaeologists, it's kind of a long story of sort of accidental things, but um, I was really wanted to be a herpetologist when I was a kid snakes and lizards and, and, and amphibians. Uh, grew up in Michigan, there were lots of those things there, but uh, when I was in high school we moved to the desert of outside of Tucson, Arizona. And in the process of looking for snakes and lizards and etc cetera, etc, cetera, I kept running across artifacts because of course the desert things you can see. I mean they're exposed on the surface. Now I'd always been interested in sort of what we, when I grew up, we called Indian relics. Uh, and I always wondered about how arrowheads were made and as a kid i tried to do it but i had no basis for for what i was doing at all um and so things sort of came together and university of arizona had a really good anthropology department and a lot of active archaeology going on so when i finished high school in tucson uh, i enrolled in anthropology there and, and and it's been that way ever since and i just like you say i have a passion for understanding that the, the human condition uh, how we got where we are um, and wherever it is and that's why I end up working in places like Kazakhstan and Russia and Brazil etc it's all it's all of interest it's it's the human experience it doesn't matter um, what it is peopling of the Americas that came about kind of again not by accident but by opportunities and I started working with uh, archaeologists uh, George Frizz and Dennis Stanford in Wyoming and Colorado looking at early Paleo-Indian sites uh, and some of those were Clovis sites and, and Clovis uh, mammoth kill sites um, and so the whole Clovis issue came along and at the same time I was flint napping and making replicas and trying to understand the technologies and it all sort of gelled together like that um, and then through time I just kept getting different opportunities to, to work on that particular topic. And I also did um, field work in Southwestern France with uh, Professor Francois Bord back in the 1970s. Um, and he was an expert Flint Knapper at the time, which was one of very, very few in the world. Um, and we hit it off very well. And we got talking about what you can learn from making stone tools and how at that time in the early 70s, we, as archaeologists, we hadn't really delved into the technology of manufacture. We were looking at forms, I think what we call morphology or typology. Um, And so wrapping these things all together sort of with the technology and the typology sort of got me sort of going along the lines of trying to understand where things came from, how they got there, and how they changed through time, whether it was environmental influences or historical influence of who knows and that's how i ended up really getting involved with the uh, people in you know, the americas and it's taken taken off in all kinds of strange unexpected directions
0: <laughs> yeah i mean you, you've certainly had an expansive uh, academic career i mean you're the the breadth of of your excavations in terms of the geography and uh, as well as the time span of the different uh, different eras is, is quite remarkable uh, and i've had the opportunity to see some of your uh, uh flint napping uh videos on youtube and it's it's quite fascinating I mean, just the that whole process um of, of you know we can think back to our, our ancestors as they must have been through trial and error and you know clearly there were some members within those those communities that were had a a, a knack for it and were able to produce these these you know they, they were the master flint knappers, and, and i'm sure that that tactile touch and the, the amount of force to use and and you know even just selecting the stones must have been quite an art
1: it, um it is and was. And the, the not, interesting thing that struck me very early on was everybody's ancestors was, did stone tools at one time or another. It's not something specific to place. It's more related to time, I suppose. Um, and that, that has also been a connection for me um, where I, when I'm flint napping and really focusing on doing something like a Clovis Point or something, I'm not thinking in language thinking in concepts and applying those concepts and somehow or another it's the closest i'm ever going to get to getting into the heads of somebody in the past
0: for sure Um, it's almost it's almost a time travel experience in that way
1: well sort of it's not exactly that but i mean and i don't think of it consciously as i'm doing it but um it's it's just something that connects me and it's not just flint knapping it's all the different aspects of technology what we call experimental archaeology uh, making and using and trying to recreate the past in, in a sort of physical way—we'll never know 100% sure that we've done it. Um, just because I can do it a particular way doesn't mean they did it that way. But yeah, sure. uh, we can sort of test hypotheses, ideas about how things might have been done, and and say, well, it's more likely—it's it's all probabilities. It's it's more likely this happened than that you know, based on our experiments. So that's, that's also been a real strong connection for me, all the way to trying just about everything. I've built stone structures, I, you know, I've done pottery, baskets, the whole bit. Um, and, and it's all been very, very enlightening. And one of the things that really does give a person is a, is a great respect for, for the human past. People were not simple, they weren't, weren't any different from us in many ways. And, you know, it used to be a big joke about we taking a class, oh yeah, you're, you're at university, you're gonna take a simple one like basket making. Well, i tell you something else, basket making isn't so simple. And <laughs> I learned that the hard way. <laughs> but, uh, so, so anyhow, it's been a, it's been a real journey. <laughs>
0: Sure, and I, and I guess, you know, the, the, in, in our modern culture, we may overlook the importance of something like a basket in the importance of daily activities in terms of the, uh, the foraging and gathering, uh, and that would have been a, a highly valuable and useful uh, uh, piece of equipment uh, back in the day.
1: Absolutely. And of course, we'll never find the earliest baskets because they're perishable. For sure. Um, they probably are very, very early. probably one of the most important discoveries or inventions ever in the history of humanity was the making of twine rope cordage Sure. It's fibers and, and twisting them together to make something long and narrow <laughs> that you can do things with and we'll never know where that started or how it happened or how many times it was reinvented
0: sure, so that's, sure.
1: never mind it's it's we know it was there
0: <laughs> absolutely so I, I asked this question of uh dr dillehay as well and i ask you uh it seems that archaeology and archaeologists are very resistant to new ideas and and really seem to punish or crucify those that uh, deviate from the existing paradigm. Why do you think that is? Oh, why is, a,
1: is is a dirty word in archaeology? <laughs> <laughs> it's a four-letter word if you put an exclamation on the end. We're always looking for why and human motivation and that's the hardest thing to come by. Um, you know I don't think it's that much different in archeology span than it is in most science. Um, Science does, we'd like to think, and this is the way I was taught at school, that science uh, develops in increments, you know, little, small steps, small steps. The reality is you've got human beings doing it, okay? And with human beings, you have ego, you have all kinds of different aspects of human beings. And if you look at the progress of science, generally speaking it's in fits and starts something something new happens it's resisted 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 and then all of a sudden the evidence piles up to the point where it can't be resisted anymore and it becomes the new paradigm and 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 then it becomes the dogma and then it something different gets resisted and resist and it, so we sort of go in fits and starts it's the same in archaeology um it we do Use scientific method uh, to develop our evidence, uh, but then we interpret it in terms of humanity, um, which makes it really complicated. <laughs> um, and academia itself has its own its own issues—the nature of the way ac- academics are, are sort of organized and designed, um, how you get your funding, et cetera, et cetera. We're in competition with each other, et cetera. Um, so it's a human, it's a human endeavor, and therefore these sort these things happen. Um yeah. I, I remember very much uh, I had a um, a ma- minor in geology at the University of Arizona, and it was a very, very strong geology department. And this was in the 1960s, late 1960s. Um, the whole concept of plate tectonics was considered anathema. It was it was crazy, nutty. And we were told it was, it was, it was ridiculous uh-huh. and, and forget it. And that's what I was taught at university. And that's not that long ago. And now plate tectonics is the, is the paradigm, almost to the exclusion of everything else. And I, my son's a geologist. And uh, he gets very frustrated because he, any, any evidence that comes along that doesn't fit the plate tectonics paradigm seems to sort of get pushed to the side. Um, So geology is going through what we go through. And I think it's not that uncommon, and especially when it's academic science. Science that's focused specifically on technology and developing new things isn't quite the same.
0: So. Yeah, because I guess the, the the fruits of your labors are in front of your face and they're easily testable versus, uh, right. uh, and, I, and I suppose the, the other, to, to me it seems like the resistance is also based on the fact that if you have established your career or your base of knowledge on a certain sequence of events that, you know, especially the people in the Americas, which perhaps is linear, and then someone comes along and says, "Well, hey, maybe we actually saw a migration from Europe along the uh, the ice margin, and right. that really, really sort of sets everything off." And and you know, then we have you know potential African uh, migration into uh, Brazil, which then throws the the story even further. And it's I had this clean tale that I had told myself and everyone that would listen, and now it's become uh, a murky, and I've got to add these other elements in. And,
1: That's right, um, and. It- Archeology span is, after all, evidence-based. You know, we deal with physical evidence. Um, but when it comes down to it, the evidence that we have available to us probably represents a tenth of a percent of what happened in the past. Yes. So we've got to fill in the blanks, but that doesn't mean that raw speculation is, is, is acceptable. Yeah. Speculation leads to evidence-gathering, which then leads to hypotheses that then are tested with further evidence gathering. This is the process that we go through. Um, and some people interpret the same evidence different than somebody else will, you know, because again, it's, it's, it's not like we get 100%. We get a very small percentage and that leaves it open for a lot of um, alternative interpretations. And so therefore we have uh, debates and, and usually the debates tend to be civilized, not always, (laughs) Um, and especially when when what's considered an extraordinary claim or extraordinary idea is put forth, uh, and most of those eventually fail in terms of uh, evidence support, but it's really important to keep pushing the envelope, because otherwise we're telling a story, we've got the answers, what's the point in doing anymore?
0: That's
1: right. Sure, and and so so so-called the truth. Well, we're never going to find the first evidence of the first person that set foot in the Americas. It's not going to happen. Statistically, it it just can't. It isn't possible. So uh, we just have to keep working, um, developing our methods, our our how we test things, and and just move on. And it's really really important that we have fresh ideas and that they are then. Tested with with real evidence, and that's what I think. Almost all of us will espouse that. Sometimes how we go about it, etc., is is debatable.
0: (laughs) Well, and I just wanted to touch on a point there that you raised. I mean, the the finding that first example is going to be exceedingly different, a difficult, sorry, because it's probably under 120 meters of water at this point.
1: Uh, It could be. It could be uh, washed away geologically. Um, during the glacial, the last glacial maximum, we had these massive um, outwashes from the, the water would build up under the glaciers and for a long time and then fin- finally there'd be an, exp- it, it'd get released and, and completely scour the landscape. And we have a we, You can look geologically, you can look at um, satellite images of sort of the Midwest, sort of from North Dakota, actually out, coming out of Manitoba, North Dakota all the way down through the Mississippi Valley. And basically it was scoured. I mean, just one of these massive glacial out, outpourings. Uh, and it, it destroyed virtually everything on the surface and for quite a, quite a ways below the surface. And that was actually just not much before Clovis time. So anything before that in those areas would have been gone. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's not only buried, it, and a lot of it has just been destroyed.
0: Yeah, I had, uh, Dr. James Kennett on yesterday and we were discussing, uh-huh. uh, the younger, younger Dryas and, and the, uh, the impact hypothesis and, uh, sure. the. The floods which followed and, and uh, you know, the climatic changes and so forth so it's it's interesting that's to me that's been something that's been very interesting for a long time and of course where i live here uh we were one of the conduits uh for the Cordilleran and ice shield meltdown and, and of course sure. getting into the wenatchee gap and grand coulee dam and and all of those incredible uh geomorphological features that we see down there
1: yes absolutely and so Preservation is a big issue uh, for archeology. span And the further back in time we go, the more geology has to say about it, and the less likely we are to find things. It doesn't mean there aren't things preserved. Um, It wasn't long ago, uh, just a few years ago, that um, in in Britain, in England, the oldest known remains, hominin remains, were about 500,000 years ago. Uh, And it had been that way for a long time. Uh, and then a single find on the Norfolk coast moved it back another 400,000 years. Okay, 400,000, that doubled the time by the finding of one locality. Okay, and the chances of it being preserved are slim. The chances of it being found and recognized are slim, but it happened. It doesn't negate it just because it's one or just because we didn't think it happened or, or could have been. So um, I think we need to continue to develop and, and apply our methodology, but apply it evenly across time and space and two hypotheses. So if, for instance, an a, example, we're trying to understand where a culture found in Alaska uh, came from. Called the, we call it the Denali complex. Okay, so what we do is we look at what we find, when it dates, the kinds of artifacts there are, the context, the activities that they represent, and we look at their possible predecessors. So you look nearby, and if you look nearby and you go west into Siberia, we have a complex, that's called the duktai. Okay, well, I think we can, just about everybody I know of agrees that Denali developed out of the duktai. Okay, time and space, and we use the criteria of looking at the artifacts, looking at the context, looking at the activities, the cultural things. But for some reason, we're not able as a, as a profession to do that equally everywhere, because sometimes it doesn't fit our model, and therefore we say, and I have heard this over and over again, extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence. Yeah. Okay, well, you can make that, but who, de- who defines extraordinary? And why does extraordinary claim or evidence have to be found? Just archaeological evidence, apply it the same. If you apply it to Clovis, apply it to everything else. So uh, I I think if we could manage that, then I think we're going to have a much more robust debate about evidence as opposed to just saying, well, that couldn't have happened, so the evidence must be wrong.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So that, that's actually sort of a great uh, segue here to a question that I had, which is I wonder if you can uh, weave a narrative for the listeners uh, to explain the possible origins and migration routes for the early people of the Americas. Uh, you know, many people are probably familiar with Clovis first. Uh, however, obviously, complex cultures don't materialize out of thin air. They must develop, adapt, and evolve over time. Can you give us a, sort of a high-level overview of some of these migration patterns, let's say from the onset of the last glacial period, some 115,000 years ago?
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, um, yes and no. I mean, Some of that isn't my area of expertise. However, uh, if, if we look at what we see, what we call the last glacial maximum, like you say, the last 35,000 years to, 15,000 years ago, and we look at Eurasia, it's fairly clear that we have Upper Paleolithic, what we call Upper Paleolithic, Late Paleolithic peoples living um, on the continent. Um, And then we have the glacial period where the glaciers in in the Northern Eurasian area pushed down into the the rest of what's now Western Eurasia, pushing people into a number of refugia. and there's five refugia. Uh, And then as the glaciers start to recede, then you see a repopulation and a redistribution of people across the landscape. And it's this this last redistribution of people across the landscape that we look to, generally speaking, when we're looking for a peopling of the Americas. Um, And the the archeological cultures that we see out in Siberia, central Siberia, uh, are are fairly evidently um, uh, derived from what we call the Gravedian culture, which is an early Upper Paleolithic, or Middle Paleolithic, I'm sorry, Middle Upper Paleolithic uh, culture. Uh, Again, based on artifact types, distributions, context, uh, lifestyles, et cetera. Um, And it's fairly clear that this, this spreads across Eastern Asia, and actually up into, all the way up into Alaska. Um, by the time you get to you know, 14,000 years ago, uh, we've got originally Gre- Gravedian derived peoples in, in eastern, northeastern Asia. At the same time that's going on, uh, you have uh, uh, four of the five refugia are, are Gravedian related. So the Ukrainian, the Balkan, the, uh, the Italian, and I'm missing one there, anyhow, uh, refugia during that glacial maximum were related to the earlier Upper Paleolithic that we see. The one outstanding different one is, is the Basque refugium, which is in the uh, Pyrenees, uh, where we see the development or the adoption or how we're not exactly sure where it came from, uh, a culture that's very, very archeologically different called the Salutrian, okay? And Solutrean goes from about 22,000 to about 17,000 years ago, although it's not terribly well dated. Um, and it's very different. Uh, it, it, has, it shares some characteristics with the other upper Paleolithic cultures, uh, Gravetian, et cetera. Um, but it also has a, 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 a new technology, at least for that area, a new technology, which is a bifacial technology, where they're making tools in a much different way. Um, The Solutrean also are are credited with a lot of inventions, at least from our archeological evidence, Uh, spear thrower, bow and arrow, um, harpoon, uh, very, very uh, innovative, as well as this bifacial technology. Um, It lasts until about 17,000 years ago, again, more or less, uh, primarily in the Iberian Peninsula, uh, in the Western Pyrenees. and then it's gone. And it's replaced by um, a, a descendant of the Gravedian again, what we call the Um, And it, it's, it's a very interesting phenomenon. So that's that's one thing that was going on. So you've got Eastern Asia, which basically is, is uh, Latter-day Gravedian. You've got the Central Europe, which is Gravedian. And then you have this thing in Southwestern Europe, which is not. It's different during the glacial maximum, and then as the glaciers start to recede, then you see a, a repopulation of, of Western Eurasia, and a further expansion into northeastern Asia, by again by descendant Gravettian-like groups, at least a, a, again based on archaeological evidence, um, and we we see that. The disappearance. I don't want to make it sound mystical or anything, but the Sluitrian doesn't survive in Western Europe. Don't know why.
0: And so, um, and so is there, were they competed or or is there evidence of warfare? Do we do we have a sort of a general idea of what happened?
1: No, no. Right, right now, it's just basically people mm-hmm. just say, well, the environment changed, and so technology changed. But I don't, I just don't see the case being made. What what is what is it about Sluitrian? Technology that couldn't have survived into the modern era. I mean, they were doing the same kind of hunting. They were, you know, uh, although they were starting to focus more on marine, and then post train, you see what we call the Magdalenian really going for marine resources. I mean, they're out on the oceans for sure, um, and and yet they're back to the old technology. So um, I think sometimes we put a little bit too much. Emphasis on artifact style changes indicating uh, environmental adaptation. Okay, um, yes, people had to adjust to new environments, and not not only that, they sought new environments. I mean, they didn't just sit there and let the environment happen. They went out and explored. I mean, if people weren't explorers, we never would have settled the Arctic. I can tell you
0: that. <laughs> sure, sure. So. so- <laughs> um that so if we can now move towards uh, discussion on the solutrian hypothesis mm-hmm. um you know obviously so it's fr- from that background they were uh, you know sort of a, a highly ingenuitive group of people with their technology uh some some marine-based adaptation uh, so what made them kind of uh i guess explore that ice margin and eventually get to uh, the new world
1: again we're looking at a hypothesis that, that uh uh, my colleague Dennis Stanford and I published in a book in 2012 across Atlantic ice where we presented evidence um, that would indicate that this is this did happen now again remember we're t- saying it's a hypothesis isn't it's not a dogma that replaces another dogma okay so what we have to do what, what does it take to 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 demonstrate or support or uh uh, knock down the hypothesis, evidence, new evidence, more evidence. Okay, so what we're seeing is that, again, motivation of people is a very difficult thing to, to get to archaeologically. We often talk about, well, people migrated because they were overpopulated um, for, the, for the environment. They couldn't, so they needed new resources. The environment changed, so they couldn't adapt, and so they had to move et cetera, et cetera. But I think what we, we tend to fail to do is look at the human experience, stand back and look at it a little in a bigger way. Human beings are like many other animals, we're explorers. I mean, uh, we, we didn't go to the moon because we're overpopulated. Well, some people, if you read sci-fi, think that's, that's what's gonna happen. But um, we wanted to know what's out there. We wanted to, we wanted to learn. Um, and some cultures are very um, pioneering and other cultures are very static. Uh, some cultures are maladaptive. They don't survive. I mean, that's, that's clear historically. Um, and, and some do. You know, why? That's a good question. So a motivation, it, normally in archaeology, we have to have physical evidence. So we tend to go to things like environment. To, to look for motivation. So why would why would the Salutrian people cross an ocean? I think you can ask the same question the other way around. Why wouldn't they? Okay. Um, we we tried to make the, the, the case with again with some evidence that it was tough to make a living on 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 land during the glacial maximum. We know that was the case in, in terms of compressing the landmass that was available for occupation, okay? People were squeezed together and some of them probably didn't make it. Um, and you're sitting on the edge of the ocean and you look out on the ocean and you got some ice out there and you can see seals as far as you can see. I'm hungry. <laughs> and you have the great auk by the millions, evidently. Um, and on land you've got to go for the ibex, you've got to go for the red deer, you've got to go for the reindeer, and maybe you know how to do that the horses um but they're not always there, and they're not always easy to come by. but the seals come up and 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 have their babies on the beach every spring. why wouldn't you go after them? I mean, why wouldn't you and um once you start that and you start to uh, adjust your way of thinking and your way of hunting and your way of getting resources. Why not just continue to, to develop that to the point where you're actually out on the ice, out on the ocean, and one thing leads to the next and pretty soon you're finding a, another bit of land. So our hypothesis is, is one of, of uh, adoption and exploration. Uh, you got push, pull, Pull is there's a lot of food out there. Let's go for it pushes. There's too many people here. We can't make a living. Okay, so you've always got these push pull issues. Uh, I think both were going on. Um, and Salutrian people for for whatever reason had this ability to to innovate. And in, innovation. Leads you on so uh, We see that people started using the ocean edge uh, margin, uh, possibly because they were hungry and possibly because they wanna know what's over the horizon, uh, maybe both. And once they got started in, in, through time, through the generations, we're talking you know, quite a few generations here, they learned how to use that environment. Um, somehow they kept getting better at it and sometimes they failed just like the Inuit did. We, every, every time the spring ice went out, people got lost when you're out hunting. Um, But they eventually learned how to do it and um, that became their, their hunting ground was the North Atlantic along the ice. And eventually, whether it was intentional or blown off course or whatever it is, they ended up hitting land on the west side of the ocean. And our hypothesis has them actually utilizing that as their territory, that North Atlantic Ocean seasonally. With people tethered at both ends. Okay. So we're at one end and folks at the other end on what's the, the eastern seaboard now. Um, and that's where our evidence is taking us. Uh, again, if you look at the oldest accepted archaeological materials, I mean, generally accepted, there's always somebody that won't go along with it, which is fair enough. Uh, the oldest generally accepted archaeological materials now before Clovis. South of the ice, south of the the glaciers, is on the eastern seaboard of North America. Okay, not including some of this really early stuff in South America, which is a whole other ballgame. Yeah. Um, So or in Latin America, so we we've got these archaeological sites, and they've been they're beyond speculative now. I mean, there's enough of them um and getting good dates good stuff in context etc cetera, etc cetera, that it's gonna if you're gonna again if you're going to use comparable criteria for the west and the east some of these sites have got to be accepted and then some of them are 21 22 000 years old
0: and and back at that time uh that crossing would have been a lot uh, less ocean distance than it is today
1: it is yes um it was at times, uh, you know, where the oceans down, uh, the Grand Banks would have been exposed. Uh, the British Isles were connected to the continent, um, so you, you're you're reducing the the distance. But to me, that's not terribly important because. If you can go a thousand miles across the front of the ice, you can go two thousand miles across the front of the ice or three thousand miles across the front of the ice, and if you can do it in the North Pacific, which is evident evidently people did because we've got early enough dates that they couldn't have come on on land. they had to come on coastal migration. Why can't you do it on the Atlantic side? I mean folks as folks, right <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> um but there has been there has been a significant resistance to the the hypothesis, but primarily in North America, um, in certain areas in Western Europe. Uh, I've given presentations on this all over the world, um, except for Africa. I haven't been there, but um, and generally speaking, people are quite interested. Are the, other other archaeologists are quite interested in the evidence, um, so. It's, it's a bit of a mis, misstatement that archeologists generally, in a great majority, dismiss the, the, the concept because that's not been my experience. Um, certainly people are skeptical, which is fair enough. That's what science is all about. Uh, you, you've got to have skeptic, you've got to ask for the evidence. You've got to say, okay, why you're, why you're saying there's, what doesn't fit your hypothesis? Et cetera, et cetera, And of course, the, 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 the big game changer has been genetics, human genetics and the genome. Um, and I, people keep saying that there's absolutely no genetic information to indicate people came from Western Eurasia. Uh, and we've disputed that. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to circle back quickly. So the earliest date then in the northeastern U.S. Uh, of these artifacts is around what, what, what date did you say?
1: But 21 to 22,000 years old and we've got several sites. I can give you the names of the sites Parsons Island. It's being worked on right now. A big monograph uh, dated in two different methods, independent methods, uh, artifacts in place in stratigraphy. In other words, buried, not surface. Yes,
0: in, that's this in is, Chesapeake Bay,
1: that one? That's Chesapeake Bay, Bay area, yes. Yeah. And Miles Point, which is another one that's now been destroyed. Um, uh, and there's Oyster Cove. There's, there's a whole bunch of these that are in the same basic stratigraphic uh, context. Um, and that puts them in, in the Solutrean era. And the artifacts, to me, the more we've got, Uh, the more we get the more salutrian they look i mean they're they're virtually every artifact type that's come from those sites you can have is replicated in salutrian somewhere right right Um, so to me it's kind of a no-brainer at this point but um, it's quite controversial
0: I, I, it was interesting to read the, uh, the discovery of that Solutrean-style bifacial blade that was found uh, by the uh, fishing vessel, the Sinmar, off the coast of yes. Virginia uh, yes. in 75 meters of water, um, which really didn't show any uh, evidence that it had been tumbled there. Or there was no geological processes. It looked like mm-hmm. it had been uh, pulled out of the stratigraphy by the, the dredging uh, or the dragging equipment of the, of the fish boat.
1: Right, right.
0: So yes. that uh, that would that to, to me that's some pretty strong evidence. Uh, you know, the, the, the Clovis culture wasn't out swimming that far offshore to to do what do something, right? I mean, that Certainly not sense. eighteen
1: thousand years ago.
0: <laughs> no, no, that's right.
1: <laughs> Your ancestors right. were, but.
0: <laughs> and so the the, the 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 climate um, at so twenty one to twenty two thousand years ago um, at that ice margin. Uh, that would have been pretty similar to a polar-type environment, would it be?
1: Uh, yes and no. Um, there's, there's no modern equivalent uh, uh, to that environment. And the primary reason for that is because the ice margin would have been a very, relatively low latitude. Okay? So the Arctic now is above the Arctic Circle, right? Uh, but we're talking about an ice front that went basically to the, the Portugal. Okay? So we're we're talking about a margin that seasonally extended way down and so much more sunlight, so much more phytoplankton, da-da-da. Okay, so we don't actually have a good modern analogy. Um it would have been, I mean, the climate, uh, people doing the reconstructions, uh, uh Richard Pelletier, et cetera. Uh, have done really interesting reconstructions in North Atlantic during that time you can get online actually and see a, a animation 3700 years annual sea ice change um and it would have been tough it would have been tough out out there along that ice but it also would have been very productive so it was tough on land i mean people so, so blithely talk about people. Oh, if the folks came across Eastern Siberia and they walked across the land bridge, as a, you know, like a stroll in the park. I don't know if you've been to Magadan, but it's the coldest place on Earth now. <laughs> I mean, in the winter time. I mean, it's 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 tough out there, whether you're well, on land there, or on the edge of the ocean.
0: And there, the there nice wasn't thing any. Uh... The
1: ocean is that it ameliorates the temperature. I mean. You're, you're, you've got that wa- massive water that keeps it from freezing, right?
0: Well, that would have been a highly productive ecosystem then as well with, uh, with those, uh, the amount of uh, plankton in the waters. And, you know, certainly if you're pulling uh, fatty fish and, and a seal out of there on a regular basis, I mean, I think they were, they were probably eating pretty well, uh, perhaps even getting more calories than their counterparts on land. Uh, you know, it's certainly... And ultimately, that's what your survival is based on—the number of calories you're getting in, into you on a on a daily basis,
1: and whether it's it got the minerals in it, the fat, and all that. And um, what's what's really interesting for us for us uh, is the the story of the great auk, which was uh, the North America, uh, North Atlantic penguin. Uh, penguin is actually a Welsh word; it's nothing to do with Antarctica. Wow. <laughs> and uh, because the 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 great auk was a, a flightless penguin at uh, up to 20 25 kilograms, oh, wow. so you're talking 50, 50 60 pounds, um, and historically they 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 were in the millions, and they migrated historically early historic times. There's accounts of them migrating from northwestern Spain Portugal across the North Atlantic to North Carolina and back annually.
0: Oh, well that, there's a completely follow- reasonable, uh, you know, hunter gatherer type, uh, uh, position there to be following the, the game. I mean, the, the, the yes, and, in- and
1: just follow the food and sure, sure. Auk would have been at least historically, the awk was very, very easy to procure their early Basque accounts. Uh, when they were whaling off of Newf- Newfoundland and Labrador, they 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 lived on, ox, uh, and there's one account uh, of, of them gathering in in dinghies off their ships, eight thousand ox in one afternoon. No
0: nope, no wonder there's none left.
1: <laughs> well, they went extinct in uh, 1844. Oh. Uh, and we we wiped out the passenger pigeon. We seem to be pretty good at killing things that lived by the millions, but. Yeah. um and, and auk bones, although we don't have it, we don't have Salutrian site with auk bones in them. We do have uh, Salutrian paintings that show ox in, in cave paintings at Koscair Cave, which is actually on the Mediterranean, but they have ox there. Um, so we don't have the direct evidence, but you brought that up a little while ago. The direct evidence, if you're living in a coastal area, 20,000 years ago, is under 100 meters of water yeah, yeah. And, and and the 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 change in, in sea levels didn't just all happen at once it went up and down etc through time and so you get massive coastal erosion like we're seeing now in eastern north america in various times so archaeological sites and specifically salutrian sites even on what is now land um, are very rare And almost, I think the count is now up to six Solutrean sites that are not in caves or shelters, okay, total, okay, there's no way Solutrean people that lived on land were hunting in caves and shelters, okay, they were out on that landscape, but it's gone. There's a geological thing that happened after the glacial maximum that seems to have stripped that landscape pretty much bare. So again, where is it? Well, if, if they were on the, on the beach, like we think, at least seasonally on the beach, they weren't all necessarily always there. Um, they would have been there in the spring and the winter because you can't be up in the, in the Pyrenees, you can't be in the Picos. Um, they're, they're glaciated, <laughs> so. Um, They'd be on the coast, and that coast is now underwater, and a lot of it's ablated, a lot of it's gone. But um, archaeologists uh, in France have estimated the Sleutrian landscape that's now under the Bay of Biscay is 22,000 square kilometers. That's not a huge area, but it's, it's a pretty significant area. And um, if you're making your living there, that's where you're, where the archaeological evidence is going to be so yeah. and the same on the east coast of north america as, as you pointed out for SinMar. Uh, we know there's buried landscapes out there there's been some amazing archaeology being done in the north sea between britain and, and holland and th- those areas unbelievable mesolithic landscapes out there um but they're accessible because we're only talking about 20 meters of water okay but there's paleolithic early paleolithic stuff dredged up all the time out there but that's a little different than 120 meters of water
0: sure absolutely absolutely
1: you know the one place that's that's really interesting to me and people have pointed this out it's not my work or my observation there's very few places in the world where you have that landscape that's above water now and one of those places is southeast Alaska and western um, um British Columbia where you have the tectonic uplift. So you've got 20,000-year-old uh, beach terraces and things exposed, and we haven't found 20,000-year-old artifacts.
0: I think there, there's a find, um, uh, Douglas McLaren, I believe is the gentleman uh, who's found some footprints which date back to about 18,000 years, sort of mid-coast of BC, mm-hmm. um, which, which is part of that uh, uplifted terrace.
1: Um, right.
0: So there, there, there seems to have been a migration around that time, perhaps from uh, both sides.
1: Yeah, it'd be interesting to find some artifacts to go in the footprints.
0: <laughs> yeah, there, I believe there's a, there's a cave with a depositional layer of, of bones and so forth, um, which, which seem to, you know, the, doesn't necessarily appear that it's just a, a trap where animals are falling into because there's such a diversity. Um, but there is, yeah, like you say, there's no artifacts or any human remains that have been discovered other than the, uh, the footprints.
1: Well, human remains are scarce at the best of times, and the older you get, the harder they are to come by. Um, You know, we do have hominin remains, but then you're looking at hundreds of thousands of years. You know, and and we get 10 human remains in some place in East Africa, but it's over a million years. Um, If you look at our early human occupations that we absolutely, everybody agrees on Clovis, etc. What do we have for human remains? almost zip almost nothing until you get to about nine ten thousand years ago so lack of human remains isn't a really good indicator of lack of people
0: right yeah i mean obviously some something left those uh either artifacts or footprints or hearths i mean there's they they wasn't they weren't created there by uh by some animals or something
1: no not that we know unless it's Sasquatch, you know
0: yeah. 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 we haven't, we haven't found him yet either uh so so what, one of the one of the i guess objections to the solutrean hypothesis has been that time gap between what that originating culture would be and clovis uh what are your thoughts on 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 that time gap well we we we
1: demonstrated that in our book we have a whole chapter on that there is no time gap there's no time gap if you if you, if if yes and it's, it's I'm, I'm really convinced that the archeology span is good. Parsons Island at 20,000 years ago, that's actually early to middle Salutrian. The, the overlap is is 5,000 years. There is no time gap, because if you're talking about the end of Sleutrian and the beginning of Clovis, yeah, there's a time gap, but we've got all this stuff in between now. It's been filled in. I don't think that's an argument anymore. Okay, okay. Um, Yeah, it just isn't.
0: (laughs) And, you know, clearly the the Clovis didn't materialize out of thin air. There had to have been something prior to it. And, you know, I guess if we're looking at uh, simply from a technology standpoint, uh, the Solutrean technology, while it's not exactly the same, you could see that the Clovis technology would have come from uh, or could have come from the Solutrean technologies.
1: Just like Denali could have come from Ductai, using the same criteria
0: yes yes um and then th- there's the interesting tale of the the huron wendat uh, first nations story it's a group out of quebec um that have their origin myth as having come from the east uh, across a salted lake which is it was interesting sort of uh, uh, element to this whole story
1: it's, it's even a frozen salted lake
0: right yes okay <laughs> <clears throat>
1: um that 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 goes through a lot of Algonquian groups um we haven't gone gone that route um, in terms of looking at origin stories and histories of Native Americans. Um, uh, it, th- there's a lot of pitfalls there. It's not to say that these aren't realities, uh, certainly for the people that that ascribe to them they're the reality. Uh, but it, it is complicated. I mean, if you look at most Native American origins histories that I know of, uh, the creationists, okay? Uh, we were created by the, the, the turtle or we came from the buffalo or whatever it is, fine. That's, that's fine, I have no problem with that. That's not my story, but that's fine. But then to turn around and sort of cherry pick the couple that might not do that, that might fit ours, our idea, it's not to negate it. It could be very, very valid. It could be something that came down. We need to, again, in archaeology, we need to have evidence, physical evidence. Physical evidence in the in the form of genetics, human genetics. Okay, that's physical evidence. And there is physical evidence um, that people came, some people came from West Eurasia. How they got to northeastern North America, you can argue whether they came all the way across Siberia with leaving no trace behind, or they came across the water in front of the ice from Europe, what's now Europe. And please don't let anybody tell you they were Europeans because that's much, much later in time.
0: <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> so uh, I guess on that then, on the genetic side of things, um, we, we do have some, I guess, mitochondrial DNA evidence that indicates... Um, there's, I guess, the, that uh, X to the X2A haplogroup, which seems to have transferred potentially from the Solutrians to these uh, specific native groups in America. you cannot in the say
1: Solutrians because we have no Solutrian genetics? What we can say is that, that X2 uh, was Paleolithic. Okay. okay. It, it, it goes back, it starts, starts in the Caucasus. X starts in the Caucasus. It's a mutation there, and then spreads out from there, primarily west, across North Africa and southern Europe, across the northern Medi- the north side of the Mediterranean, and it ends up. It's it's still at this point in time, it's still a very rare haplogroup, but where it does exist in any of numbers is the Iberian Peninsula, uh, the Basque refugium, and a lot of Basques are X. Now. X2A, that little extra letter on the end, that is an American mutation. It doesn't exist in the old world, okay? And according to the geneticists that first identified X2A, uh, using the the mitochondrial clock that we use for everything else for, for A, B, C, and D, it originated in the new world In the Americas, sometime between 18 and 20,000 years ago, again, using the same method and evidence. um, It it happens right in the glacial maximum in North America. Okay. Uh, Geneticists can argue back and forth about how it happened, where it came from, and all that kind of stuff, how it got there. That's what they say. I mean, that's, that's X2A is a, an American mutation that happened during the glacial maximum. It happens to be distributed primarily in northeastern Canada along the, and, and, and primarily in the Algonquian speaking groups. Okay, the Algonquian speaking groups were the hunter gatherers, uh, not the Iroquoian farmers. And they're the ones that, that have the stories about coming across the frozen salt water. Um, coincidence? Who knows? We're getting, there. there's more on the horizon in terms of, of genetics. And mitochondrial DNA is, is one of the things, uh, unilineal DNA, as they call it, uh, Y chromosomes, another for the male. That one's much more difficult to date. Uh, but we have R1B, which is, Primarily now found in Western Eurasia, uh Scandinavia, over that direction, that's the male. It's uh dominant in Native American people and men in in northeastern Canada. So we're not sure on dating on that. It could be post-contact, but if it's post-contact, it would indicate the numbers indicate, proportions indicate that there was a hundred percent replacement of Native men by. European men, in historic times, and we know that's not the case. That's there was a lot of admixture, but it's not. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hmm. So,
0: that's that's very interesting. So I, I read in your uh, paper that you co-authored with uh, Dr. Oppenheimer, uh, entitled "Mammoth in the Room," that this X two A gene uh, also appears in the uh, Nuu-chah-nulth 1st uh, Nations in uh, on Vancouver Island we're uh, 8.8% abundance uh, which is a very high signature uh on the other side of the continent any any you know what phylogeographic inference can we make here that's that's quite a well, quite a trek
1: it is it's well it is but we we have we have language groups on in northern california that come from the east coast of north america as well i mean there's it's 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 not it's a really mixed up situation it's complex Uh, genetics don't necessarily equate to artifacts and artifacts don't mean genetics language is the same Uh, but you can start looking at this thing and I think one of the things it it demonstrates is people got around you know we think of, of ancient people as sort of being pedestrian and stuck in one place or something but it's not the case people really got around. I mean, in one side we're saying, with the Clovis first hypothesis, we're saying people got from, from Eastern Beringia, Alaska, to Fuego in the south, southern tip of South America in 800 to 1,000 years. And then we turn around and say, well, they couldn't have gone from the East Coast to the West Coast, huh? Yeah. I mean, come on, you can't have both ways. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, and, and certainly those settlers, if they had those uh, marine-based technologies, when they got to the head of the Alberti Inlet and there was uh, salmon swimming past their feet in, in throngs, I mean, it would have been a, a fantastic place, probably a lot easier to survive than uh, on the East Coast in terms of climate um the, i can i can see that uh, a group of explorers that wound up there would have uh, had a very uh, a great existence there, a very very prolific uh, spot to live
1: yeah and when they found figured out the candlefish then they really had it
0: <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the we we call them the ulukins up here ulukins okay ulukins yeah um,
1: well i mean yeah i think we got again be evidence led we n- we, we have to develop hypotheses on, based on evidence and test that, those hypotheses based on evidence and not preclude things just simply because they don't make sense to us. And I think that's where we've got stuck. Or say, well, this one, this one must be it because it makes sense. People came across Beringia. They came down an ice-free corridor. They populated all of the Americas within a, a few hundred years. Um, Actually, that doesn't make sense, but that seems to be the one that, that seems likely because you can walk it. Well, people that say you can walk across that, I don't, have never flown an airplane recently across that area. Uh, I flew over to Beijing a couple times last, last year, year before, and over the Bering Strait, and on the other side, it was all water. I mean, everywhere. I mean <laughs> It, it, it's the only way you get across that territory is boats or when it's frozen. Right. And when it's yeah. frozen, you don't need a land bridge, right?
0: You, right, right, absolutely, absolutely. So the, um, uh, this, this genetic work then obviously is in support of the Solutrean Hypothesis. It provides us with uh, sort of some secondary uh, evidence uh, apart from the, the artifacts to, to support the, the hypothesis. That's our,
1: that's our argument. Of course, uh, the the big failure here is that we don't have a, a, a continuous pro, a continuous line of of genetic evidence. So much of it's based on modern populations and then uh, projections back. Okay, which which is statistical and all that kind of stuff. We do have uh, more ADNA now, uh, although you know ancient DNA. Um, we did. For for a project that we were working on, uh, a documentary, uh, Canadian documentary, um, we were able to, in partnership with with Native American groups in, in northeastern Canada, were able to process forty uh, genetic samples uh, from pre-Columbian time periods. Good context. Um, and this again was in total partnership it wasn't we're doing it uh it was done actually the the materials were supplied by the the native american groups the genetic samples uh and were tracked Um, and out of 40 samples four pre-columbian samples were x2a that by itself says it's not admixture after contact with modern europeans Bingo. Now how it got there, that's still interpretive. okay? So genetics is going to be a, a, a real game changer. It has been, but it's still in the early, early innings. There's still a lot of methodological issues. There's a fairly recent paper that came out that says uh, the genetic work has, has, has used the wrong hypothesis, the wrong um, markers. And if you use these other markers, you come up with completely different results, okay? So we need to keep pushing forward with that, um, with the genetic stuff. And of course, when it comes to Native American things in in total partnership with with the descendants, there's no question about that um, when possible. Um, But it's it's not a done deal. And, And just because you found a possible Clovis burial, I'm talking about ANZIG now, and there's some real questions, valid questions about context, uh, an individual had genetic um, analysis and the conclusion was, it proves that people no Clovis people couldn't have come from Europe. A sample of one, that, that would not be acceptable anywhere else. <laughs> under any circumstance because and and then we don't even you can't even prove it's clovis i mean so but but how, how do you get from that to it proves or disproves the solution hypothesis all the evidence other, all the other evidence gets thrown out because of one genetic sample it's
0: crazy it's crazy That's so the, that the, Sorry, just, just to back up slightly and that, to, when you're talking about that new means of interpreting the genetic data, uh, are you referring to that maximum genetic diversity hypothesis?
1: No, I'd have, I'd have to, it, this is out of my, it's, it's over my pay grade, actually, when you get <laughs> to genetics. Um, I have to rely on other people, and, such as Stephen Oppenheimer. Uh, I'm talking about an article that was put out in 2017. Um, which basically, and I can send you a copy of that article if you'd like. Yeah, that'd uh, it's be great. A Chinese lab, Chinese group that was going back and uh, reassessing all the genetic work that had been done on the people in the Americas, uh, using other people's data. I mean, they, they didn't generate new data, but they generate they they used a different way of looking at the markers, and they claim that the the way that geneticists have been looking at the markers uh, is inaccurate or, or not, not a good way to go. Uh, I have no way to evaluate that. So I've sent it to people that can evaluate that. And I'm still waiting to hear whether this is credible work or not. If it turns out that they're, they're credible, changes everything. I mean, literally everything. So um again it's probably be highly resisted because it's a new way, new idea a new method um and i don't know if it's credible or not but if it is their conclusion was there's lots of evidence to indicate that their solution hypothesis is real or or, or accurate um they got they bring connection directly between anzic and uh, uh just early pre salutrian uh paleolithic person in spain they say it's the closest connection so we'll see if you want me yeah. i can you want me to i can did i did i send you
0: that article? is that the uh juan and huang uh... yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah so I, I did go through that and actually so I, I came across an interesting uh piece there which which um that they may have Identified um, that there's a hybrid admixture of Neanderthal and modern human, and that may have happened in North America, um, which is very interesting, and, and that possibly can provide some support to the Ceruti Mastodon find, mm-hmm. pushing things back even further in time. Yeah, well,
1: I'll leave that to other people. I've, I've got enough on my plate. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and and I got I got to ask you, what are your thoughts on the Ceruti Mastodon find? Um,
1: I'm I'm mildly skeptically supportive um i i think they did a there are some issues and i think some of the critiques are are good critiques i'm not sure that they're any more valid than than their arguments are so i'm kind of neutral i have no problem with it could have happened um we gotta again let the evidence take us there i i think they make they made a pretty good argument about the, the, the stones that are there. They're not geologically. They're not in the right place. Um, when we found that in other contexts, um, you know, like uh, Verde in different places, um, and in later times in Clovis, I mean, I can. I, we've got Clovis sites that have no artifacts in them too. I mean, you know, it, it's pretty rare stuff. Um, I think they made a pretty good case. There's there's some issues uh that I don't I I just can't evaluate. I can't I can't evaluate the dating. Right. Right. Not my expertise. I have to rely on other people. Um and they make a case. So um
0: some some of the some of the wear and use marks on on both, I guess, the tools and and the imprints on the bones. I mean, that seems more than happen chance that it was a geological process.
1: Yes, it seems to me that's the case. I mean, the, the stone anvil that they have that has the marks on it and the broken cobbles that go with it. Um, if if that was, I always have to ask when, when somebody puts that out, something like that, I said, well, if the date was 10,000 years ago, how would you evaluate the evidence?
0: It would probably be simply accepted and we'd move on.
1: It, that's what I think. Yeah. For this yeah. Um, so it's always easy to to sort of pull apart one piece of something. If you focus on one little thing, you can say, well, the bones could have been broken by heavy machines. Well, it could have been is not evidence. <laughs> you
0: know? Well, and it's, it seems quite um, purposeful how the, uh, the the hip socket has been removed from the top of the femur. I mean, it, it, it isn't a random breaking of the bone, you know, the, the, they seem to be systematically uh, yeah. broken.
1: Well, we worked, I worked with Dennis Stanford and, and a crew on a site called the uh, Selby site back in 74, 75, which was a, a mammoth, uh, a Pleistocene mammal place in, in Eastern Colorado we excavated and we're talking sediments are lus, okay so this is wind blown dust nothing there could have been blown in the size of a a, a, a pea okay anything bigger than that didn't belong there geologically it was in a, in the bottom of a one of, one of these chain lake pond things pleistocene uh and we had a whole bunch of mammoth bones and camel bones and horse bones and different things and i excavated uh, We all of us excavated these things we didn't find any artifacts any stone artifacts but we found mammoth long bones wide bones like like the um uh, humerus radius uh etc with massive impact fractures Radial impact fractures with depressions, massive things on this bone, surrounded by ribs and vertebrae unbroken. Okay, we're talking a, a very low energy environment with no sediment bigger than a grain of sand. Mm. How did that happen? No. Well, it dated about 16, 17,000 years ago. Yeah? Okay. You know, but because we didn't find any stone artifacts, people say, well, it, it must be natural. It must have been trampling or something like that. But <laughs> how do you how do you trample a femur or a radius of a, a mammoth and, and miss all the ribs? You know, it, it just didn't work. And it's there's not. there's probably now, seven or eight of these kinds of sites that, that have been investigated. Steve Holland and other people have investigated these sites. Somebody was out there busting up mammoths uh, 16, 17,000 years ago. And if they had stone tools, they were taking them with them. You know, they, they weren't leaving them behind in those contexts.
0: So, sure. Absolutely. It's a
1: curiosity, but
0: uh, interesting.
1: If, if, uh, if, if these are natural phenomena, Uh, We ought to be able to replicate those in uh, Pliocene, Miocene deposits, right? Before we have any chance of there being a hominid. As far as I know, nobody's done that. Mm -hmm. Nobody's found these kinds of signatures in clearly pre-Homo contexts.
0: Uh, Well, that's that's a bit of a smoking gun there.
1: I would think so. (laughs) Now, maybe nobody's looked, but uh anyhow
0: yeah i mean it's just it just seems like there's that, that systematic use and, and the find that you're describing i mean if if you have these impacts without damage to other uh bones which are much easier to to damage like if there was a you know some sort of conflict between two two mammoths with their tusks and this type of thing i mean just those the, the evidence doesn't add up
1: no it doesn't no, even then it didn't, but we kind of blew it off because. We didn't have any stone tools. Everybody said it wasn't real. <laughs> yeah. But those are the uh, reasons. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: so uh, I gotta ask you as well on uh, Pedro Fudara in Brazil. Um, you know, there's, there's a potential there of uh, migration potentially from West Africa into uh, the area of Recife there, um, mm. which and, you know, some of that dating goes quite distant into the past. What are your thoughts on that find there?
1: Greater Farada is is very interesting. I, I know some of the investigators fairly well. Um, when I first heard of it, I sort of blew it off because people, my colleagues, said it was no good. The, the stones were naturally broken, or they could have been broken by capuchin monkeys or whatever it is. Um, but uh, there. Fabio Parenti and a number of other people, Eric Boyda, they've been working out there have made a very strong case, I think, for that stuff, at least some of it being of human origin. Um, And yeah, it it gets pretty old. It gets 20 some thousand years old, 25, 30,000 years old. Um, And it's hard for me to just blow it away. And there's other evidence down there, the site that nobody mentions, uh, it's been published in 2011 um, by D- Denis a uh, French archeologist who's been working in Brazil. Um, it's called Santa Elena, Santa Elena, Mato Grosso State. Uh, it's an, an amazing rock shelter with stratigraphy, multiple, multiple layers of stratigraphy and good, good stratigraphic context going from fairly recent times back. And they've got a level there that is, it's, it's amazing that the, the artifacts, quote unquote, are strange. It, it's not classic flaking, but there is some of that. But they've got um, osteoderms, which are um, ossified skin cells of, I've forgotten, giant ground sloth, I think it is. They're these funny little round, sort of soft things that they're, they're preserved uh, ossified skin cells. And there's thousands of them in this one particular layer where these things that I'm, I'm convinced are humanly modified artifacts, the stone tools. Um, and they now have three of those that have been ground flat to make us a f- small plaquette and then biconically drilled. Now, I wanna see somebody show me a Capuchin monkey biconically drilling something, okay? Um, that that looks solid. They've got four different independent dating methods on that level, and it's 27 to 30,000 years old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the, the the article is in French, and mm-hmm. Americans don't read foreign languages, generally speaking, with a few exceptions. Tom Delahay, et cetera, who can you know does Spanish. Uh, it's, it's just been completely ignored. Now, Villuys have been out there working on that site again for the last number of years i happened to be in sao paulo a couple years ago when they came in from the field and brought all their materials in from that season and they laid them out on the table and they said we want they wanted me to look at them and i looked through what they called stone tools and i'm convinced they're stone tools Mm -hmm. they're different they're not typical um they're choosing a, a indurated limestone to the flake, and they're not. Some of it's flaked. I mean, there's no question to me. Some of it's flake, but a lot of it's just sort of broken in a funny way. And you know, you got almost. I don't know how similar they are because it's just sort of a, a impression. Uh, Chicoite Cave in northern Zacatecas, by it's been worked on and published by Cyprian Ardellian and and, and colleagues. Um, that was fairly recent, and the same the same. Critiques have, have been leveled at it, even though the people making the critiques haven't actually handled the artifacts. <laughs> oh, they could be natural, they could be this, they could be that. It coulda, woulda, shoulda, you know, uh, evidence, people. If you're gonna critique something, do it based on evidence, not what could have been or should have been or would have been. And right. uh, so we're waiting to see on that. There's uh, the the article that came out in Chicoite, was in, in Nature, which is, has a very limited sort of um, format. It's basically synthetic. You, you, you pre- present your, your synthesis. So the, the, the detailed analysis of the over 1200 artifacts is in process right now and being finished up. And when that gets published with 3D uh, images of every single artifact, um then people will have a, a a a means of critiquing. But right now you just don't write it off because you don't think it should it would work.
0: And and what are the dates on that find?
1: 27 to 30. Okay. Thousand. Okay. Yeah. It looks so much like the one down in Mato Grosso. I, and that's a long way between Zacatecas and Mato Grosso.
0: Yeah, one of the things that interests me at uh, Pedra Fidara is the cave art there, which to me looks very similar to the the, the Shan art in uh, in South Africa there. Uh-huh. Just in terms of the representations and the style, uh, it's very interesting.
1: Well, again, I'm, I'll leave that to somebody else. <laughs> uh, um, a very good colleague of mine, um, Mercedes Okamura, is now the head of the uh, the lab, the genetics lab in in Sao Paulo. Um, and this is where um, Walter Neves w- was looking at the the skeletons from uh, northeastern uh, Brazil, where they have several hundred, and coming up with a lot of evidence. I mean, physiologically, uh, they're they're Australasian. Um, that doesn't mean that that's that that's pheno, uh, phenotypic, not genotypic. So they they're, they're with the new ge- genetics uh, methods, they're trying to get, they couldn't get genetics out of them earlier, but maybe now we can, or they're trying to see what goes on there. But yeah, there's a lot of uh, Australasian kind of stuff down in South America, too, that can't be explained by running people through Beringia.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I guess and there's some signatures of that, uh, the Denisovian gene in the midst of the Amazon uh, yeah. Which has a you know nearly as high uh, of a uh, percentage as in uh, like uh, Papua New Guinea for instance, and that that's highly anomalous. And you know that's a whole other a whole other uh, um, discussion. But that's very very yeah. interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess right now I just I, I would like to see us as a profession um, be a little little more open minded about possibilities. Not and and. and I'm fairly convinced myself, I wouldn't say, I don't use the term belief, but um, I'm fairly convinced myself that in time, we're going to find that there were multiple migrations to the Americas, some of which failed. Some genetic populations that didn't come down to modern times um, from different areas at different times. Um, We really are the the melting pot. (laughs) I think that's what we're going to end up finding. but we'll see it, has, it really has to be verified through evidence um, but if we close our minds about possibilities uh, we'll never find the evidence yeah yeah absolutely yeah. absolutely so anyhow that's, that's- sort of my final statement in a way. <laughs>
0: sure, sure. So, so Dr. Bradley got to ask if, if you could uh, go back in time and, and chat with yourself as a, a young 18 or 20 year old young man, uh, what information or, or, or what advice would you have for that young person?
1: Well, I give, this, I give the same advice to my students. Um, enjoy what you do, pursue it with passion, be open-minded, but be, be critical. And, and if you do all those things, you're gonna have a heck of a career, I think. Uh, and, and share it, don't be afraid to share. Uh, I see academia is so, the, the way academia works, is so much towards keeping things to yourself, keeping it, it's my stuff, it's my stuff much less so now than it used to be because it's being mandated by governments who are putting up the funds for all this stuff that you got to share this stuff they want collaboration but then they want you to be a primary author you know so there's there some real conflicting things in, in the academic community and, and if you're going to go at this through academia be aware that it, it's it's conflicting um you're never going to make it you make your name until you have Single-authored articles, but you're not going to be considered a good scientist unless you collaborate. So you go figure.
0: It's an oxymoron. Yeah. And so, uh, what, uh, yeah. what's sorry? What what's on the horizon then for you in terms of new new research or areas of exploration? What's what's coming up?
1: Well, I one of my colleagues, another colleague, Gustavo uh, Rujo, just got a five-year thematic grant uh, in Brazil and we're waiting for the COVID wave to start pursuing that. Um, And specifically looking at the, not just the earliest people in Brazil, but what became of them. In other words, it's, it's a thematic sort of the history of, of, of of Brazil from the earliest times up until the the contact with uh, Europeans. Uh, He's got some real interesting plans. I'm going to be part of, I'm, Written into the ground, I'm part of it, um, and he's got a real international team, uh, multidisciplinary. Uh, I'll just have a little piece of it, but it's it's going to be has has potential to be really interesting. Um, so I'm continuing that. I've got a project going in in uh, Uruguay with a, a colleague down there looking at early uh, materials, but Clovis era, uh, not not pre-Clovis per se, but how how did this how does this thing relate to North America if it does? And if it doesn't, how did it get to be almost the same? <laughs> you know. Um, so we're doing a lot of experimental archaeology replication, trying to tease out the very details of technology for comparisons. And that's a lot of fun because I get to bust rocks a lot. Um, <laughs> I've got some other uh things going. Um I'm keeping keeping up with what's happening on the east coast of north america i'm not directly involved in that research now Uh, and in some ways that's a good thing we need different eyes and you know different people who don't have a dog in the fight so to speak looking at some of that early stuff but i'm still on the fringes um and i'm doing workshops in china uh, flint napping workshops in china which is interesting of course that didn't happen this year but it looks like it might happen again next year. We'll see when we we'll get the vaccines out and things.
0: Um, Fingers crossed.
1: And then I'm doing my work here in Southwestern Colorado on the Pueblo and stuff. We just got out of the field on Sunday. So, um, and, and that's, that continues on completely different archeology, span but a lot of the questions aren't much different. I mean, you want to know about the human experience and maybe a different culture, different time with different technologies, et cetera, but they were still people. And uh, it, it's it's fascinating to try to puzzle some of these things out. Some some pretty sophisticated stuff going on, and that that didn't survive to the present. So uh, anyhow, so that's where that's where that's going, and hopefully I've got a few more years to do this.
0: <laughs> fantastic fantastic and then so um dr bradley how can listeners learn more about you and your work where, where can i direct them if they uh, well they sell?
1: could go to i have a personal web page that i'm hopefully you're gonna get more more up on um this winter you know in the field seasons it's kind of hard to do it um and it's primtech p-r-i-m-t-e-c-h dot net okay primtech.net or primtech.rocks
0: dot uh, rocks okay yeah yeah Either rocks. okay um, great
1: and that'll get them to a personal web page that has lots of links to other things uh, it's 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 in it's in development and will be for probably as long as i live but uh i try to get some more stuff up i'm putting up a lot of old stuff and and then uh in terms of publications there virtually all of my publications uh are available at researchgate yeah edu i think it's edu or, or yeah. It's edu. Yeah. EDU. yeah edu so some of these things i've been talking about like genetics uh, mammoth in the room that that article's up there um are now across atlantic ice isn't because that's still in print and still being sold by by university of california press so i i couldn't put that up it's in copyright but uh, there are a number of articles that Dennis and I put together with about the Solutrean hypothesis that are there and available. So.
0: Okay, fantastic. And I guess and, and that uh, that volume is available on uh, Amazon, is it? The the yeah. Atlantic ice sure. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I I was I grabbed a, a Kindle copy of it. Sure. A, and it
1: was, it was a difficult one to write because we were writing it for the profession and the public at the same time. It's kind of a trade board. Um, we've had very very positive response in terms of people that don't have a background in archaeology being able to get through it and enjoy it so
0: yeah I mean it's, it's it's got a lot of great illustrations and um, you know the 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 figures are easily to do to, to discern for the layperson
1: yeah yeah we tried to explain how we're developing the evidence and it wasn't just here's what we think we found but Here's how we look at stone, and here's why we do this, et etc, et etc. so it's a bit of a primer on on
0: archaeological method as well yeah no it's it's a great volume for sure well sir that's uh, that's been a great discussion here. Uh, thank you so much for your time um, You're and, welcome. Uh, I'd love to to circle back with you uh, in the future here when we uh, you get some more results coming out of uh, South America there and uh, sort of filling in some of the blanks on uh, those early stories there
1: yeah well, I'm happy to give you what I know anyhow.
0: <laughs> yeah, sure. That's great. Well, it's, you know, it's, uh, you're, you're certainly one of the, the preeminent uh, uh, minds in this field. So it's, uh, it's a, been an honor to speak with you.
1: Well, thank you very much. And um, I enjoy doing this, as you can't tell. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fantastic. All right, sir. Thank you so much. You have a good evening and uh, we'll keep in touch here. All right. Very good. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Bye. Bye-bye.